I'd like to now welcome Luis Rosa to come and read today's scripture. He will be reading in Espanol. Uh, the uh, English will, of course, be on the screen there. But Luis, would you please come? Filipenses, capítulo 1, versos 1 al 11. Pablo y Timoteo, siervos de Jesucristo, a todos los santos en Cristo Jesús que están en Filipos, con los obispos y diáconos. Gracias y paz a vosotros, de Dios nuestro Padre y del Señor Jesucristo. Doy gracias a mi Dios siempre que me acuerdo de vosotros, siempre en todas mis oraciones, rogando con gozo por todos vosotros, por vuestra comunión en el Evangelio desde el primer día hasta ahora. Estando persuadido de esto, que el que comenzó en vosotros la buena obra la perfeccionará hasta el día de Jesucristo. Como me es justo sentir esto de todos vosotros, por cuantos tengo en el corazón, y en mis prisiones, la defensa y confirmación del Evangelio. Todos vosotros sois participantes conmigo de la gracia, porque Dios me es testigo de cómo os amo a todos vosotros con extrañable amor de Jesucristo. Y esto pido en oración, que vuestro amor abunde más y más en ciencia y en todo conocimiento, para que aprobéis lo mejor, a fin de que seáis sinceros e irrepensibles para el día de Cristo, llenos de frutos de justicia que son por medio de Jesucristo para la gloria y alabanza de Dios. La palabra de Dios. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Luis. Uh, this week we are beginning a new series uh, that will, will essentially be taking a very slow look at the book of Philippians. Over the next ten weeks we'll be taking a deep dive to consider what it means to live as a Christian. Uh, for the Christian... What are the markers of actual spiritual growth and formation? And in particular, what we want to see over the course of this series is what does it mean for our lives to be marked by joy? Uh, what's uh, one of the more ironic things about the book of Philippians is actually the very concept of joy. The reason why it's an ironic concept is because of the circumstances uh, in which its author finds himself. So the author is the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's writing the book of Philippians while in prison. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And while he's there, he writes this really short letter and in this letter, he brings up the idea of joy nine different times. Uh, despite writing this church, or writing to the church in Philippi while in prison, what's interesting is that, look at verse 4, it says that he still prays for them with joy. Joy is something, apparently, to experience regardless of life's circumstances. And over the next 10 weeks, I hope we can see why. I hope we can see that as we grow in our relationship with God, as we grow in the Christian life, joy actually becomes central to what it means to live a Christian life. And now this week, I want to spend particular time looking at the concept of joy because this is going to inform a lot of what we're going to do over the course of the rest of this series. Uh, and so what I want to do, I want to look at and try to understand how Paul could have joy even in the midst of such dire circumstances. And I want to do that by looking at three things in particular. I want to take a look at what joy is. Then I want to look at why often we don't have it. And then finally, 
how do we get it? Okay, so first, what is joy? Uh, to begin, we need to get one thing on the table. Uh, the idea that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Uh, too often when we consider joy, we often think about joy in terms of happiness. And now I would certainly acknowledge uh, that they have some overlap. They are actually very different things. And that a wrong, and what we need to see is that a wrong definition can actually have some really serious ramifications uh, for us. So, for example, if Paul considered happiness and joy to be synonymous, I have to assume that the book of Philippians would have been written very, very differently. Let's consider the differences between joy and happiness. Uh, first, as far as happiness goes, you know, it's interesting that there's really been no shortage of research that's been done uh, about happiness, particularly happiness being a real issue for us in the West. Uh, much ink has been spilled in trying to understand why. Uh, what's interesting is, as an example, uh, a few years ago, uh, actually a number of years ago now, but uh, this, there's been a study that the UN has done over the course of an extended period of time in which they've rated the happiness levels of various countries, and the United States, of course, being one of those countries. And what's interesting is that in this study, what the UN found is that our rates of happiness in the United States have plummeted over the last 10 plus years or so. So in 2006, 2007, we were ranked third amongst a certain group of countries. But then by 2019, right, so just last year when this up, uh, the study was updated, in that same grouping, we had plummeted to about 19th on that list. Of course, uh, as you look at the different factors uh, and reasons why, there's a variety of them. Uh, some of them have been related to uh, our economy. Uh, some of it had been related to a growing distrust of government and business and various corruptions. Uh, there was just too much corruption. Uh, or, yeah, too much corruption in government and business and corporations. But most of what the reasons for the plummeting were, they were actually social in nature. Uh, much of it related actually to how we treat one another. Specifically, one of the reasons why our happiness has plummeted so far is because we've become so incredibly individualistic. We just don't care about people who are outside of our small tribe. As an example of this, there was a study done in uh, between 2001 and 2011, uh, and the study was attempting to discover social capital amongst people in a particular society. Uh, basically, what they were trying to discover is how people treat uh, those that they would consider strangers. And in one case, researchers placed, as a, as a, a way to assess this, researchers placed stamped addressed envelopes in various public areas. So that means they would place these stamped uh, addressed envelopes on sidewalks, in shopping malls, in phone booths, when those still existed, if you guys remember those things. Uh, they wanted to see whether or not people would pick up those letters and place them into a mailbox. Of course, be a common courtesy to those who are complete strangers. And though, uh, through those studies, uh, Looking at several countries, of course, including the United States, they discovered that in the U.S., residents sharply declined 
between 2001 and 2011 with their willingness to help a stranger. Which is interesting because that didn't happen in some of the other countries they studied. Uh, countries like Canada. Apparently our neighbors to the north are much kinder to each other. But the point simply being is that there's this broad uncertainty about the intentions of other people. Now, I say all this to tell you to say this. This is why this matters. That regardless of the reasons for the decline, all the reasons for the decline were determined by the circumstances that were surrounding us. Okay, so the reasons for our decline in happiness have been things like the economy, things like the lack of quality relationships. Right? It's, it's a broad culture. It's a societal thing that's happening, all of which has played a role in our lack of happiness. And if you notice, in many cases, we have all had little control over these things. They've all been kind of thrust on us, circumstances outside of our control. And here's the rub. Oftentimes, we have a certain uh, vision for how we think life ought to go, and if that vision for life is not accomplished for, for whatever reasons, our happiness is undermined. In other words, happiness is very dependent on the interplay between the vision that I have for my life and the circumstances that are around me. And if my circumstances work in my favor of what I think life should be, then I find happiness. Paul, in this letter, however, is not speaking about happiness. In fact, Paul's circumstances are incredibly miserable. I'm sure his circumstances are not aligning with his vision for life. And yet, in spite of that, verse 4, he says, I always pray with joy. How can that be? Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6 shows us why this is the case. And the same, and at the same time, shows us what joy actually is. It's a powerful verse. It says this. It says, He is confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I think verse 6 is actually one of the best definitions of biblical joy. Because joy is not about the vision that I have for my life. That's happiness. Rather, joy is trust that what God intends to accomplish, he will accomplish. To put it another way, happiness rests in my vision for what I think life should be. Joy rests in trusting the vision that God has for what my life should be. And those are two very different things often. My happiness can be undermined by my circumstances. However, joy can never be undermined because nothing undermines the purposes of God. In fact, for Paul, even difficult and painful circumstances are seen as part of the purposes that God is accomplishing, and thus, even the painful circumstances produce joy. I mean, look at verse 7. Paul says, Whether I am in chains, or defending and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. I mean, despite the fact that he is in chains, Paul sees God's grace with him. And we cannot, we cannot have this kind of perspective if our goal is the pursuit of happiness. 
That perspective is only accomplished when our joy is in the unshakable purposes of God himself. And so bottom line, here's the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on my belief of what I need in life, what I perceive, what I can achieve in life. Joy, however, is based on me trusting what God says I need and what he perceives is best for my life. So if that's the case, why then don't we have joy? Well, in one sense, uh, that's actually a very simple and easy question to answer. If we don't have joy, it's because we don't trust God. If joy is trusting the purposes of God, then if we don't have joy, it's because we don't trust God. If my happiness is dependent on the interplay between my vision for life and my circumstances, then joy is the interplay between circumstances and my trust in God's purposes. And to the extent, the extent to which we trust God is the extent to which we will have joy. Now, I know I need to maybe pause there for a second because I do realize that there's a real tension point there for some. Because there are some really tough situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in that cause us to not trust God. In fact, I realize that for some, this is the very reason why you can't be a Christian because there is a real tension between what we think our lives should be and what God seems to be doing in the world. And for some, it seems like God is not interested at all in our happiness. And it does not seem like God has our best interest at heart sometimes. And I think there's really two reasons, two major reasons, why many people can have a hard time trusting God. Number one is, I think, one of the reasons is that submitting to things, uh, it requires submitting to things that we don't want to submit to. And then second, of course, there are circumstances in life that just don't make sense. And I think those two reasons can be reasons why people don't trust God. Let's quickly look at those further. I mean, consider the submission thing. There are things that God requires of us that will go against our desires. Okay? Some would say, I cannot trust the Bible, I cannot trust Christians or even God, or a God that seems to be against my happiness or my vision for my life. And to be fair, the Bible, yeah, it has many commands that might go against the grain of our modern day sensibilities. You know, just as examples, easy examples, but God has a very specific sex ethic that might very well go against one's desires. God is clear on how we ought to use our money and our resources, and that might very well go against one's vision for life. God is clear about how we ought to care for one another, and that again might go against people's vision for life. I get it. However, I have to ask the question. If God is God, meaning if he truly is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life, and the one who holds the future, what then should our assumptions be in regards to his commands? I mean, if he is God, does he have the right to determine that which is good and right and true? I mean, if he made the world, would it not make sense that he would weave into the fabric of the universe a certain order and intentionality, which would then be reflected in the commands that he gives to us? Could it be, could it be that there is not something wrong with the commands of God, but maybe there is something wrong with our desires?
I mean, consider the fact that since the beginning of time, we have been plagued with desires that are destructive. This has been common to all humanity. And now while we certainly wouldn't say that all desires are equally bad, it does seem fair to say that there are some things that ought to be objectively true, right, good, and true in the universe, certain things that should not be left up to our own subjective opinion. And from the Christian perspective, the external thing that gets to determine that which is good, right, and true, under which all of us are subject and must submit, is God himself. I mean, from the Christian perspective, there is no fuller life that can be uh, had except when one is reflecting the will of God in their life. And when our desires and our proper understanding of the Bible come in conflict, Christians would say there's something wrong with our desires, not with the Bible. And so one of the reasons we don't have joy is because we don't trust God's commands are better than our own desires. But the second thing, second reason why I think we often uh, don't have joy is because there really are very difficult circumstances that we experience that question whether or not God is actually in control. I mean, some of us right now know what it is to experience horrible tragedy or painful betrayal or unimaginable sadness. And trusting that God knows all things and holds the future seems impossible, and therefore joy seems impossible. I mean, if you've ever read the book of Job, that's the main tension of the entire book of Job. Uh, if you know Job's story, essentially everything had been taken from him. His entire family died. He lost all of his possessions. He got struck with uh, sickness. And the entire book is really wrestling with that question, God, why? But there's one verse in the book of Job that's always stuck out to me. Job 13.15, which says this. It says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. What is that? That, my friends, is joy. I mean, that's trusting God's purposes. And so often we don't have joy because we can't imagine giving that kind of response. You know, when I think about the most difficult seasons of my life, times when I have felt uh, the most shame or the most fear or the most uncertainty, and I've been at that place of asking that question, God, why? And had to wrestle with how God uh, might answer that question. Uh, let me say that it's not a bad question to ask, first of all. We've just come out of a lament series, and so I want to at least point out asking God why. It's a good and right thing to do. But I won't pretend how all of this works. I won't pretend that the answers that God gives or the silence that God gives on reasons why make sense to us. Because there are some tragic situations that really do make believing that he is good very difficult. I mean, right now, we are in a time that is truly testing our ability to experience joy. Of course, we are currently in lockdown. It's keeping us from being able to be together. I mean, every day, still, hundreds and hundreds of our fellow New Yorkers are dying. No one in this city has been untouched by this outbreak. I mean, right now, our country is more divided than ever. You know, what's ironic to me is that you would think that, like in the past, when we've had national tragedies, we would be unified together. There'd be compassion and empathy amongst us, bridging all kinds of divides. 
And to be fair, I think that is happening uh, in New York, and I'm grateful for that. But broadly speaking, we are more divided now than we've ever been. And what's really quite striking is how disorienting this is. I mean, what is happening right now? And you know what I've concluded as to the reason? I may never know. I don't know. I don't know why we are in this deeply divided place. I don't know why there are still so many people dying. I don't know what God is doing. What I do know, though, is that all of these situations are ways in which we can actually see if we're experiencing true joy. You know, another example of what true joy looks like, a couple years ago now, there was an incident in the Bronx. Uh, there was a murder of a young man who was seated in a car next to his fiance. Uh, that fiance was actually one of our youth girls uh, while I was a youth pastor in the Bronx, so knew her well, knew her family. Uh, they had just dropped off their daughter at daycare. And what was, of course, this whole thing was just devastating that he had just been murdered. And for the family, of course, they're processing this question, why, God, have you allowed this to happen? Left this child without a, uh, a father uh, at such a young age to die in such a way. And what was interesting to me as, I, as we were um, staying in touch with the family is the way in which the family responded. And I want you to consider the way that the, the family of this murdered man responded. The mother of the fiancé, uh, again the girl that was in our youth group, had posted on Facebook a prayer that really resonated with her during that really heartbreaking time. Uh, and the prayer really struck me. And I wanted to read that prayer to you as we wrestle with what it means to trust God in the midst of horrible tragedy and uncertainty. So hear this prayer that she posted. She said this, Jesus, my heart is heavy. I feel tired and hurt. I cannot explain my circumstances and I can't understand why this has happened to me. But you, Jesus, you defy all my feelings and emotions with your compassionate love. Thank you for allowing me to come to you confused and broken, promising to make beauty out of it. In my trials, in my hurt, Jesus, give me comfort. Reveal what thy will is in my life. Reveal what thy will is in my life. What is that? That, my friends, again, is joy. That is an unwavering trust in the purposes of God in the midst of deep pain. I mean, God never promises to give us reasons for why he allows things to happen. In fact, in the book of Job, in all 41 chapters of that book, God never reveals to Job why he suffered. The only response that Job ever gets from God is basically toward the end God saying, trust me, I know way more than you do. And joy is submitting to what God desires for us. Joy is trusting his purposes in the midst of difficult times. And so the question then becomes, the final question, how do we get that kind of joy? Where does it come from? How can a person look at a situation that seems so unjust, so wrong, and so unclear, and yet say, reveal what thy will is for my life? How do we get it? There's two things I want us to see in this passage. 
First look at verse 6. I want to draw your attention back to this verse uh, because it gives us the reason why we can trust God. Again, let me read it for us. It says, He began a good work in you, or He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work. What is that referring to? I mean, the basis for our joy is what we have been looking at over the last series that we just looked at. The basis of our joy is what God accomplishes and begins in us through the work of Jesus. I mean, Jesus came for many reasons. But one of those was to show the extent to which God is committed to our good. I mean, the redemption and forgiveness and restoration found in the person and work of Jesus that leads us to eternal happiness unhindered by life's experiences because his happiness for us is rooted in a world that will one day be completely restored without the relational strife and sickness and pain and death. That's what true happiness is going to look like. Perfect circumstances. And so we have joy and knowing that God is committed to seeing us to that end. Plus, we also know that in Jesus, God is not asking from us anything that he did not ask uh, from Jesus first. I mean, Jesus himself experienced great uncertainty, great pain, even death. Jesus even questioned God on numerous occasions. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on, before he would be crucified, before he, were, he was to die, he came to God, asking God to take from him the burden that he was about to bear. He wrestled with it. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is Jesus crying out in lament. But to understand, we have to understand that in these circumstances, Jesus trusted the Father. Despite those circumstances, he had joy in the midst of it all because he trusted the Father. There's this really uh, stunning reference in Hebrews 12 about what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Hebrews 12, too, says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? Well, it was you and it was me. The joy set before Christ was the reconciliation of his people to the Father. The reason that matters is because Jesus trusted the Father, knowing that on the other side of the cross, the Father's future purpose was greater than the fears and uncertainties that he felt before he went to the cross. And trusting the Father in this way, Jesus takes away the only thing that you and I ultimately have to fear, which is the power of sin and death. This ought to produce joy in us, for God is committed to our good. But the second thing that, I, that we don't see here in this passage, but it's a teaching that happens all throughout Scripture, is that joy is actually something that is given to us. It's not attained. Joy is given. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, joy. Acts 13 tells us that the disciples were filled with joy. Romans 14 tells us that righteousness and peace and joy are found in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 says that the God of peace fills you with joy. This is important because joy is not based, uh, joy is based on trusting God. And the, the fact of the matter is that it's just not something that you can muster up. You cannot muster up joy. 
It's given to us. It's trusting that the Spirit of God is working in us. It's something that God gives by His Spirit as a result of our faith in the work of Jesus. And I say this to say, trust in the work of Jesus. Trust that God is committed to your good. Trust that He is greater and knows far more than we ever could. Trust that what He desires for us is what is best for us. Friends, when we trust this, when we trust him in this way, when we look at what Jesus has done and the ways that he's committed to proving that to be the case, we will experience joy. Joy is trusting in a God who knows far more than we do. It is trusting in a God who has proven his commitment to our good in the person of Jesus. It is trusting in a God who will grow us in joy by his spirit. And as we more and more believe what Paul said, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. I trust that the Spirit of God is going to help us do that, that we might experience joy regardless of the experiences that we might have in this life. I hope that for myself. I pray that for myself. I pray that for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that it is your love that truly does give us uh, the reasons for joy. We thank you for what Jesus has accomplished, that we might look on him and be reminded that you are committed to our good so that we might trust you all the more. And we thank you for your spirit that is in us, working in us, helping us to trust in Jesus, producing in us that joy. Would you make it so in your people today, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.